In today's garage, we have Bella Petruchinova and John Filiberto. Bella Petruchinova is a criminal defense lawyer practicing primarily in the greater Toronto area. After articling with Eddie Greenspan, she was an associate at Hicks Block Adams until she opened her own practice in 2011. Bella prides herself on being willing and able to defend all complicated indictable criminal code and CDSA matters from murder to major drug prosecutions by providing a thorough and vigorous defense. John Filiberto is a partner at Rosonic, O'Connor, Robbins, Ross, and Angelini, LLP. John is an experienced and knowledgeable criminal lawyer who has developed a reputation as a formidable advocate in all serious criminal code and CDSA matters. John has conducted numerous Superior Court trials, including murder. Whether you're driving your Chrysler Pacifica, shredding your fender, or drafting a leave application, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get it to them. John and Bella, I would like to thank you both for joining us in the garage to chat a little bit about your, some of your journey throughout the criminal defense. Thank you for having me, Marco. Yeah, thanks, Marco. I really appreciate the opportunity, especially in light of past uh, individuals you've had on the show. Um, I feel really honored. Well, this, is, this season we are uh, we're trying to get back into court. And one of the main things that I miss most about going to court is having the opportunity to see and talk to some of my colleagues that we usually see throughout the court due to the pandemic. So I figured for season two, I wanted to create an environment where we can pick up on some of the uh, stories that make us who we are in terms of the experiences that we've had and just uh, have a little bit of fun with some of this conversation. So I'm really happy that both of you uh, have decided to join us here. Bella, specifically, I remember meeting you one day when I was on hiatus from my articles at Hicks Adams, but I was still working on a case and you were working in the boardroom on a big murder case. And I feel like that experience that you and I were both working on these very large homicide cases very early on in our careers helped us generate some kind of connection as colleagues. For sure, no doubt. I, I do remember I was uh, um, running in and out of the boardroom and it has the glass um, the glass walls and, and doors. And I ran out to do something in my office, which is nearby. And then when I came back, you were there and I had never seen you. And I was using the whole table. I was putting together um, something that I had to get ready in time to drive out to, to London because I lived in London in a hotel Monday to Friday and drove back um, Friday night and then drove back out on, on Sunday. So I was rushing and, and I don't know that I spent a lot of time introducing myself to you, but I basically said something like, who the hell are you? <laughs> and then, and then you introduced yourself. And, um, as I said previously, I've spent, I spent the following seven years just following you around because of your charisma. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, that's, that's kind of you. John, John, you and I met, we met early as well, but we really, I think we really connected during one of the, probably the best jury trials I've ever had to run in my life uh, with you as uh, counsel for the CoQ, seven counts of hand-to-hand -hand drug deals with an undercover cop that, that just blew up on the crown mid-trial and resulted really for two acquittals uh, in front of a jury for both of our guys. Yeah, that, that was one of the, the, most fun cases that I've ever run in my career. 
Um, and I agree with Bella. I remember uh, meeting you just before um, jury selection that morning. And I thought, well, look at this guy. He's still charismatic. He's walking with such swagger. I think you had a student with you holding your, your giant accordion file. And you know, <laughs> came forward and you're like, hey, John, I'm, I'm Marco. I'm going to be representing X person. And I said, oh, cool. And then we just it just started from there and we became really good friends. What what was the what was the funniest moment for you on that trial? Let's just let's just get that out of the way because that was we we have to talk about that. So that trial, um, to me, I thought the crown attorney who who um, was assigned the case he's he's one of the most formidable crowns, super knowledgeable, uh, very passionate about what he does, um, but he's also very reasonable. And that trial, I think the two of us um you know really put him through his paces in terms of evidence and our cross-examinations and our closing statements and this crown attorney his closing statement is still the best crown closing statement i have ever observed i've never seen anything like it i remember he moved all the tables do you remember he moved all the tables out of the way so my client testified so i closed first and I remember, you know, during, during my closing, I would look over at the crown who was, who was literally, you know, sitting right beside me as I'm closing. And, I, and um, you can tell he was, he was getting a little agitated and angry at, at you know, all the, uh, the remarks I was making about the evidence. But he then stood up after your close and he moved all the tables. This is a 361. Moved all the tables out of the way, pushed them very, very hard. And he just put the podium in front of the, the jury. And he he had a scrap of paper with you can see there was just bullet points. He was so, I guess, you know, passionate about this trial. He didn't have to like write out a full address. It was just all at his fingertips because he, he was kind of angry too. And I remember the funniest part of this, the whole thing, he was yelling at the jury. And he's he's he is literally yelling because he was so angry about what the defense was. And it's a, he, he would say, you know, Mr. Filiberto, and when he said Mr. Filiberto, he pointed, turned around and pointed right at me. And you and I were sitting beside each other and we're like, not reacting, but he pointed right at me. He says, Mr. Filiberto wants you to believe that this entire case was fabricated. The police fabricated all of the evidence they fabricated all of the paperwork and he points over to his desk and behind his desk, there's like six to eight bankers boxes of disclosure sitting there because the project was six months, um, you know, surveillance. It was, it was a big case. Fabricated all that evidence. He's screaming at the jury. And then he walks over to the exhibits and he grabs the drug exhibit, which was a enormous Ziploc bag um, filled with heroin. And he holds it in front of the jury and he says, He's holding it in front of the jury and he says, and what? They fabricated all these drugs too? And it was just a moment where you just had to sit there without reaction. And I just sat there, you know, nodding my head slightly like, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I thought, wow, you know, this case is, it may go south pretty quick because it was such a good closing. 
And then, you know, in that closing, I'll never forget. He's like, he's like, Mr. Filiberto, he makes a lot of hay about the, there's no forensic evidence supporting the prosecution's case uh, of possession. These guys were there. You don't think I want forensic evidence? I'm a crown attorney. I look at CSI like it's porn. <laughs> and John, John looks, whispers, over, did he just say that? He watches CSI like it's porn. And I just nodded. I tried to keep a straight face. I just nodded. And I'm like, oh, God, we're dead here. And you know what? It, it, I don't know how that case unfolded the, the way it did, but it was probably one of the, the it was just the funnest case we ever did. Um, yeah, you know, that, that Crown Attorney is he's one of the greatest. And, you know, even after the trial, there's no hard feelings. I remember you and I and, and the Crown uh, sat in the anti-offices, you know, after when the jury was deliberating and we sat there and, you know, we had a nice chat, we had some drinks and, you know, it, it was no hard feelings. It was all, no, it was a great case. Great case. <clears throat> Bella, tell us one of the funniest moments that you experienced, uh, in your career. Oh, well, I think, I, I don't think my, I don't think this is going to be unique. I think a lot of us have experienced that, but, and it's one of the things when I was thinking about it, um, it's one of the things I miss the most in, in, from, from going to court in person, especially old city hall. There's something about that building and there's something, there's something, you know, comical amidst all the drama. And the, the one experience I remember fairly early on is, um, if you'll, you'll picture yourself in, in 101 bail court, which is tiny and the, immediately you walk in and you're they're right in front of you and there are sort of four wooden benches on right on the other side of those wooden benches is the glass quote-unquote box where the accused stands I was right in front of the benches of spectators and I said to uh, his worship your worship I have in the client's uh, wife she's stepping up and as she's standing up suddenly she she was pulled back by someone behind her by the hair and the, the, what what happened afterwards, I can't repeat the words that were said, but along the lines of, no, you're not his wife, I'm his wife. <laughs> at which point, at which point, both of them, when they realized who each other was, then attempted to, it sort of lunged left towards the box where the client was already running towards the door and asking the security to take him away from there. Um, I went back to the cells. The client did not want to be uh, released on bail. He did not feel safe to be out in the community. <laughs> he wanted to remain in custody. And, and to this day now, I ask a lot of questions before running bail hearing. Interesting part of that story is, is the physical layout of, of the bail court at Old right. City Hall, especially 101, because of how congested and tiny it is in there. Um, but that's old city hall john having not gone to court over the pandemic do you miss walking those halls of, of old city hall yeah you know it's one of the biggest parts of our our profession is attending court and you know talking with all of your your colleagues um you know catching up you know uh, the camaraderie between all defense lawyers it, it's an amazing community to be a part of you know john when 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 I'm at Old City Hall, specifically in the summertime, you, you might catch me after a long day standing in front of one of those giant fans in the hallway just to, just to 
cool cool off a bit. What what are your thoughts, John? What are your thoughts on the temperature in those in those some of those courtrooms at Old City Hall? Any, anything? Uh, so like, Old City Hall is such a beautiful building, but it was not designed uh, to withstand the Toronto humidity during the month of August. It was not designed for people like you and I who run really hot in the summertime and you know don't necessarily like putting on suits and you know uh walking over to the courthouse by the time i get there i'm, I'm just like you I'm, I'm drenched in sweat and i'm standing in front of a fan and you know people will walk by and be like you know give you a, a weird look like look at this guy he's he's just drying off in front of this fan but i mean i, I can remember early on in my career i'm pretty sure it was like the first um year that i was practicing one of the most embarrassing things i've ever had to encounter i was i was doing a preliminary hearing with a client and every time a judge would walk in to, to preside over the, 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 uh, the case, the AC would be shut off because it made too much noise. And so the reporter wouldn't be able to, <laughs> to actually record what was going on if the machine was on and nobody could really hear. It was, it was really loud, but that didn't bode well for me. So I remember I was sitting there beside the client, um, preliminary hearing, and um, the main you know, witness is in the stand and I'm listening to the evidence and I'm taking notes. And at the same time, I've got a handkerchief and I'm, I'm like dabbing my brow because I'm, I'm overheating. It's like so hot in there. And um, <laughs> I, just, I have to laugh. Direct examination was done. Judge says, okay, Mr. Filiberto, uh, cross-examination. And I, I, I go to stand up and the client yanks on my arm and, you know, like he's going to say, I lean over and he says, he's like, John, are you sure you can handle this? And it's like my first year. And it really threw me off, like confidence wise. I'm like, why would this guy, why would this client not think I can handle this cross-examination? We've done all this prep. We've had all these meetings. He knows exactly what the, the, the strategy is. And I, it caught me off guard. I was really puzzled. And I said, you know, what are you talking about? And he says, you're sweating like you're about to face a firing squad. And it was, I, I, I laughed and I was like, no, I'm sweating because it's so hot. I'm like, yes, I have this under control. And, you know, ever since that day, I try to be really aware of how much I'm overheating. And, and sometimes I'll even ask if it's a really super hot day, I'll ask the judge if I can just take my coat off. Cause it's too hot and, and make sure you just stop at the coat, John, <laughs> make sure you stop at the coat. <laughs> Bella, what was your first, what was your first memory of going into a courthouse? Like, does anything stand out about that experience to you? It, it does. Um, and I'll, uh, I'll name one of our former colleagues, uh, a, a wonderful and very funny, um, lawyer, her pre-Taney. I shadowed her pre um, I so I summer before articling. I, I summered at Hicks, and uh, I was assigned. Harpreet was assigned to me, or I was assigned to Harpreet. It's not clear how that happened, but Harpreet handled Brampton, and Brampton at that time 107, which is on the main floor, which is a, one of the the biggest. I think it's probably the biggest courtroom was set date court, and. Um, I don't think I'm exaggerating if I say there were, you know, 70 people in there waiting for their, this is something that we'll probably never get back to, but back, back then, 
people attended their remands and it was all these people in, in 107 and Harpreet and I walked in. I think it was my very first actual time walking into a courthouse, Brampton, very impressive building. Then 107 uh, as a room, massive full of people. I was definitely very nervous about the idea that I had to even speak in that in that setting. I had never done it before. And I did not expect what happened next, which was uh, Harpreet and I were walking forward and uh, there was the, you know, the bar. So all the, the people in, in the body of the court were behind it and all the lawyers and students were in front of it. And Harpreet um, stood, you know, very sort of abruptly stopped at the bar and then bent over 90 degrees and put his hand on his, on his jacket, I think on his stomach area, I think to, to hold his jacket. I don't know what that, I was not prepared for that. I didn't know what he was doing. He bowed to the court. I saw other people doing that, but I didn't see anything just quite as dramatic. And I thought to myself, well, I'm shadowing him. I have to do everything he's doing, but it, it didn't, you know, he, 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 he had a, a manner about it. And I, I did it and I felt really strange about doing it. I didn't see anybody doing it at that, to that degree. And I haven't, you know, let him live that down since. Do you, do you, Bella, do you ever um, have nostalgic feelings of those early days of practice when, you know, after you learned uh, how to bow in court, <laughs> do you have any other nostalgic memories from those times? Oh, what, absolutely. A ton, all the time. Um, those initial years of working in a, in a larger firm are, um, are probably the, my best, the, the best time that I've ever had as a lawyer. Um, just knowing that you have so many levels of colleagues, degrees of experience. So depending on your concern, and there are so many when you're a young lawyer, you had someone the right person to turn to, depending on what it was. It was if it was somebody who was just going through the same kind of, you know, learning the ropes at the very beginning, you, you touch base with them. If you want to go to somebody who's got 25 years of experience, you know, um, you go to them and it's just knowing that you, there's so many people to turn to and, and there was so, always so much humor about it. Um, it was, I can't imagine having, you know, not having had that. I can't imagine having built my career without that experience. I think it's made me the kind of lawyer that I am. And, uh, and I miss it. I miss it a lot. I miss it every day. John, I'm sure you can relate to the camaraderie of the firm environment, given that uh, you practice out of a firm still to this day. Tell us a little bit about how that experience has impacted on your practice. So I, I agree with Bella. Um, uh, the difference between Bella and I is that I don't, I can't imagine not practicing um, outside of, of a group of um, partners who are super knowledgeable. And I think, you know, I've been really lucky in my career. I, I started off with Pinkovskis as a summer student um, and ended up with uh, a large portion of the Pinkovskis partnership uh, when we turned into uh, Usonic O'Connor, uh, Robbins Rock, and Angelini. And I, I think, you know, I'm in such a unique position uh, working with, you know, some of the greatest lawyers in the city. Um, you know, at, at any moment, um, I can, you know, watch, read, uh, conducting a cross-examination uh, that concerns, you know, lying police officers. I can watch Liam O'Brien 
um, you know, swaying a jury and a closing address on a homicide. Um, you know, you get opportunities uh, to work with your partners on cases together. You know, I've been lucky enough to to conduct homicide trials with, you know, Brian Ross and Doug Holt, uh, Katie Scott, Hillary Dudding, and on some of the most difficult homicide cases uh, our office has, encou has encountered over time. And you know, you get to work and learn from from all these these um, lawyers uh, who all have their own unique style uh, in, in terms of how they conduct their trials. And, and frankly, it's, you know, made me the lawyer I am today. Over the years, just observing them and, and learning from them um, has allowed me to, to form my own style uh, in how I conduct my trials. So it's, it's uh, a massive impact uh, working with all these, these individuals. How has working in, in a firm environment helped you cope with those difficult days of maybe when you, you lose a case that you were really hoping to win or if you have any experiences to share about that and coming back to the firm and, and seeing how you can get past it? So one of the, you know, the, the best things about working um, in, in a firm like, like mine is no matter what, you've always got your partners there um, to assist you, you know, in strategizing any case at any given time. It's not just, you know, uh, the benefit of, of having a legal question and, and having it answered at your fingertips by, you know, six or seven different uh, senior lawyers. You get the opportunity to, to sit down and, and um, have them uh, listen to your fact scenario, listen to all the details of your case, uh, listen to the strategy that you uh, intend on on running for the trial, um, and they provide you with all their their input based on their own experiences um, because they've been practicing longer than I have. And you quickly get to learn um, what to do, what not to do, and, and how to strategize. And it it becomes a situation where every day, you know, um, you get back from three sixty one. Uh, university and both partners are sitting at, at the boardroom table and, and the key question on the top of their head is, is how's is it going? Because they're so involved in the preparation and strategizing, um, you know, every day you get to tell them exactly what's been going on in the case and, and they provide you with further input, so on and so forth. And so when you get to the losses um, in your career, they become even more difficult to deal with because it's not something you can hold privately to yourself. You know, I've lost a trial and you internalize it and you say, okay, you know, it's difficult to, to accept this type of a loss. It's also that you get, you, you go back to the boardroom and then, you know, everyone knows you've been waiting for that verdict. Right. And, you know, it, it's hard to say, listen, you know, I lost, they found him guilty. Um, but there's a flip side to that feeling, right? I remember, um, well, I mean, the flip side is this, is, is because they've been a part of your prep and strategizing, um, you know, throughout the entire thing. And they've, they've listened to you after every day of evidence and provided you with further advice. They've, you know, listened to your, your closing address before you've, you've given it to a jury. It, it's, the flip side of the whole of the loss and taking it hard is that they're there to support you in the loss and say, listen, you did everything correctly. You 
provided a great defense for your client. And, you know, sometimes you lose them. And so it's great to have that kind of a support system there. Um, so, I mean, I think working with the group of people that I have, I, again, it's, it's super lucky because it's that type of an experience where you don't have to take these losses on your own. Um, you know, you have a group of individuals who, who are able to support you through it and, and tell you, you know, that you did everything you could have done. That's important. Bella, how about you? Can you tell me about a loss maybe that sticks with you and some tips for some young counsel on how to get past those types of losses? Oh, yeah, that th tough, tough question. I mean, the, the, the trial I spoke to you about earlier, that, which was my first preliminary hearing as counsel, which uh, preliminary hearing, then we went back um, and did the trial and it was uh, a homicide, mul multiple victims. It was very, it was emotionally difficult for everybody involved. It was high stakes. And I believed in the client's innocence through and through um, and uh, everybody was convicted and I have not um, gotten past that. I have not, this was to uh, however, I have lost track of how many years ago, maybe 13 years ago. I, I think about that conviction uh, probably when I'm writing every single jury closing um, it's always in the back of my mind. It's, I think it's in the back of my mind, uh, even on, you know, less serious matters. Um, I think I, I take each matter that much more seriously because I have in my mind imprinted in my, in my psyche, the face of somebody who I believed ought not to have been convicted. And, you know, it's a process. It's difficult. It's very, it's, that's the, that's the part of, you know, instead of people asking, how do you, represent these people, uh, the tested questions by all defense counsel. People should be asking, you know, how do you live with that aspect of it? This is such a heavy profession. Like our job is not a regular job. We, so much weight rests on our shoulders. And that's an example. I started off with that. So every case I do since then, um, maybe I take, maybe I, you know, I, I, I put more effort into every quote unquote little trial because of that experience. So as difficult as it was, it shapes um, who I've been. Um, it shapes how hard I work on, on cases, but it's hard. It's hard for sure. It's a human being, you know, you're never, that's, that's the thing. That's why it's again, a, a, diff a different job than any other job. It's somebody's life. It's somebody's future that you had um, an impact in, in, um, in its outcome. And uh how do I advise for a young counsel on how to get past it? Well, let me, maybe I can I put it to you this way. Have given your answer, how you, how you, having gone through that, how do you gear yourself up or get motivated or get excited to continue on in the practice of law of criminal defense after having had that type of experience so early on? What, what motivates you yeah. today? Yeah, good question. Well, well, one of the things that, that, that I, that I, I'm, comfortable or comforted by is that myself and and the senior counsel that I worked with we really did just as as John said we really did everything we could once I've done that and I've given it my all and I give it all that passion that I have for my my work um at that point you just as long as you know you've done everything you can sometimes the cases are 
overwhelming and uh, just keep going after. I mean, if you lose, you just keep going. Just talk, talk to your client, talk to the family. And, and I haven't had any bad experiences in that regard. Thankfully, I think because of the amount of, um, of work and passion I put in, people know. I think that's all people want. People want to know that you've given it everything you've got. Once they do, um, clients and families, they take the loss actually better than me a lot of times. Um, yeah. So that's my, that's my experience. Yeah. And, you know, just to jump in uh, on the last part that, that Bella was talking about, I, the, a loss that, that sticks with me, Marco, you know, it's, it's a case that um, I did with, with my partner, Hillary Dudding. And, you know, it's, it haunts me. It's a case in the recent past. So it's like, you, you know, you go through your career, you have all these magnificent jury wins and, you know, you ride high, right? You're always confident. You've got it in the bag. You've done everything you could, all the prep is done. And then when, when the loss comes, it's that much more difficult to take. And I remember this case and, you know, uh, I think about it almost daily because it's, it was such a hard loss. It was a, a knowledge and control case uh, that dealt with a, a very substantial amount of cocaine uh, in the kilos. It was hidden in a, in a compartment in a, in a vehicle that was registered to my, my client. Um, and it was a trial that was slated for, for 361 University. And I remember because it was a knowledge and control case, you always have to think before, uh, you know, you begin a trial, whether re-election is an option because um, knowledge and control cases are, are you know, uh, legally dri driven and judges um, sitting without a jury are, are uh, the opinion is that they're better able to, to deal with the legal tests in determining knowledge and control. Unfortunately, I, I didn't know the judge that we had drew. Um, nothing really came up, uh, you know, uh, in terms of my partner's opinions on whether or not uh, re-election was a good idea or not. Um, so I stuck with the jury. And so Hillary and I embarked on, on the trial. And to be honest, you know, uh, the evidence unfolded perfectly. Uh, I was able to, to essentially point uh, all of the drug dealing behavior to a former co-accused in the case. Even as I sit and I recall the case, you know, there was just so much reasonable doubt that was provided to the jury. And, and on top of all, the client testified in his own defense and he was absolutely fantastic. He wasn't impacted in, in cross-examination. Um, and, you know, I, I literally thought even Hillary, you know, after it was all said and done, it was the perfect case. Couldn't have run the case more perfect. But, you know, the jury somehow um, found him guilty. And as you can see, it still haunts me. Um, so, I mean, how do you deal with it? You know, it's almost as if I, I haven't even dealt with it thus far. Well, let me, let me move into how, let, let me put it to you the way I put it to Bella. Even if you are still coping with that, how do you get excited or, or what still excites you or motivates you to get back up and, and continue on uh, in this practice? How do you, so in a sense, moving forward requires you to put this in your, in your, in your you know, rear view mirror. So how do you do that, John? What, what still excites you about so this, I about the practice? I think it, it's the same thing that excites most of us in our profession. Um, 
and Bella touched on this, uh, we represent individuals who are at the lowest point in their lives, where they're facing, you know, criminal charges, um, prosecution by the state, and the potential loss of, of their freedom. Um, even if it's not as serious as that, the potential uh, of being, um, you know, saddled with a criminal record, which would have all the negative impacts on their future, um, even without the loss of freedom. And that, you know, wanting to help these individuals through the most critical aspect of their lives, um, it, it's kind of what drives me to excel and, 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 you know, do as much as I can to ensure that uh, they they come through it. Um, Bella, I just want to ask you about your experience and what lawyer in your career do you have? Do you feel privileged to have seen litigating before you know the end of their career, either by appointment or retirement or other? Yeah, and I'm really glad you you asked that question. I had the privilege of articling uh, with uh, Eddie Greenspan and his partner, um, Todd White. Um, And at the time, the firm was Greenspan White. And they were both um, just exceptional human beings and lawyers in their own right with very different um, approaches to cases. And I I, uh, just like with with um, that other um, uh, topic we discussed about the loss that stays with me, the, the gains that I, that I made during that articling year, the, what I learned from each one of them, uh, both by watching them and by the, the responsibilities that they gave me um, on very significant cases, um, they've completely shaped me. And what stayed with me most and shaped me the most was the, um, the trust that placed in me. I I believe just given my personality, that confidence that I was given by each one of them on matters of such consequence gave me that push that I needed to develop into the lawyer that I am. And I think that's my, everybody has their own strengths, but that, that, that's mine. That self-confidence that, that plays out during crosses of, of senior police officers um, it, I wouldn't be able to get the results that I get today if I hadn't been given that push, that that push of with confidence by by Eddie and, and Todd, and just um, just being able to be in the room as they're discussing strategy, um, as they are you know arguing about the right approach, um, and being asked my opinion. I have to tell you, like, I, I don't imagine myself maybe even still being a criminal defense lawyer had I not been given that, um, just that, that, that sense of ability, like somebody, somebody, somebody like that believed in me so much. And, uh, together with that, the sheer value of the profession, like the privilege to do what we do. That was infused in my articling experience by both Eddie and, and, and Todd. And like just Eddie was, um, that was, that was, that's his legacy. Being a criminal defense lawyer and being able to do what we do 
is an enormous privilege and having the belief in the value of the profession. Like I, as a criminal defense lawyer, with all respect to the court, feel that I have the most important job in the room. That's a a very poignant way of describing our role uh, in in, in this process, Bella. Thank you. John, um, same question to you. What lawyer do you feel privileged to have had seen litigate before the end of their career? So, as I said, I, I was very fortunate enough to, to join Finkowski's in my second year of law school, and, and I've stuck with that group uh, through my entire career. So I was uh, extremely lucky uh, to have been on a case with, with Jack Finkowski. And I mean, our profession, um, as Bella was saying, you know, uh, has been impacted by some of the greatest legal minds. And, and Jack, Jack was one of those lawyers who uh, created law uh, through his cases. And I don't think there is a defense lawyer who doesn't have a Jack Pekoski story or an experience with Jack you know, either watching him or, you know, stories that get passed down uh, from other lawyers. Um, but I remember early in my career, after I was called to the bar, I was able to to be placed on a case with Jack. Um, it, it was an importing case and the issue was, uh, it was knowledge control, but it was a controlled delivery. And I remember going through the disclosure and thinking, this is an extremely difficult case. And just briefly, you know, uh, bare bones facts, the police, you know, they intercepted a, uh, intercepted a shipment of, of these giant, like brass ornate jugs that came, um, you know, from, from the Middle East. Um, and the RCMP uh, intercepted them at the airport in customs and they took a grinder and they sawed them in half, opened them up. And there was a, a lot of heroin in each one of these jugs. So the police uh, remove all the heroin and they replace it with their little, you know, one gram of heroin uh, in the jugs and and they send them on their way for delivery and they follow the packages. And after following them, uh, they end up at uh, the client's house. And so the police get a search warrant and they execute the search warrant. And uh, when they do, they they find the boxes sitting on the floor in the living room. The boxes have all been opened up uh, and the jugs have been separated. and so they were opened and, and, you know, that was the, the, the evidence. And so the crown's theory essentially was that the client had the requisite knowledge and control of the jugs because he not only opened those boxes, but he opened the, the jugs within them. Um, something that, you know, he wouldn't have done unless he expected that they were filled with, with heroin. And so, you know, it was just so unbelievable to watch watch Jack uh, in his element. Um, you know, all the stories that I had heard about his ability to, you know, dominate in the courtroom, they were absolutely true. He was a force uh, to be reckoned with in that courtroom. And it was, it was really unbelievable to see him um, at work. And one thing that, you know, I take away is, is through that case, Jack taught me to listen to the client and then find evidence to support the client's position, uh, which at the same time, um, essentially uh, directly impacts the Crown's theory uh, of the entire case. 
for instance, the client's position um, was that the boxes weren't his, they were his brothers. His brother had them shipped uh, to his home and he accepted the boxes on behalf of his brother. And when he got the boxes, he heard, you know, clinking inside and clattering inside. And he opened them up and, and he found that all these jugs were broken. They were broken in half. And so, you know, uh, one of the things that, that Jack had done in this case, which just really taught me to look at cases um, from different angles is he had me locate an expert uh, psychiatrist uh, who uh, directly dealt with OCD, obsessive compulsion disorder. And this person, you know, assessed the client and, you know, report, uh, drafted a report and testified in court. And essentially the expert was able to provide the court with an alternative uh, explanation behind the client's opening of these boxes when they arrived at his house, if they weren't his. And in the simplest of terms, the expert essentially came to court and said that this client suffered from such a severe case of OCD that once he heard this, this clinking inside and his mind said something's broken, he had the uncontrollable urge. He had to open it up, see what was wrong, fix it if he could, clean it up if he could. It was his OCD that directly impacted uh, the, the thought process behind, I need to open these boxes. And it directly, you know, took away from the Crown's theory that he opened them because he knew there was, there was heroin inside. It's, there's now this other piece of evidence out there that the judge has to consider that it's not knowledge of heroin, it's he's suffering from uh, a disease. And the second aspect that really, really blew my mind on, on you know, how Jack was able to, to think about cases for his clients is uh, we located an expert on adhesives. Um, so essentially the police, after they cut these jugs in half, they glued them back together uh, before letting them go on their way, right? So the expert uh, was able to examine uh, the glue and the jugs uh, that were in evidence and uh, provided a report and formed an opinion that the glue that was used by the police to reassemble the jugs would have never held those jugs together uh, because they didn't have this, the glue didn't have the strength of the properties to do so throughout the transport, throughout the trip from the, the, um, the airport uh, through the trucks and the handling all the way to the house, they would have essentially opened up on their own just from the jiggling of the boxes. And so this meant that it was entirely possible that the client never cracked those jugs open uh, to search for contraband inside. They just simply opened up during transport because the glue wasn't able to hold them together. And it triggered his OCD ultimately. Yeah. yeah. So it was, you know, Jack, he gathered these experts, you know, to provide evidence to the court that supported his client's versions of events. Uh, while at the same time, you know, dismantling the, the entirety of the Crown's, Crown's case. It's, it's absolutely unbelievable. And it was amazing to be a part of and watch it all happen. And it, it totally fashioned the way I prepare cases is just the, the thought process and watching that thought process unfold. Um, it, it's impacted exactly how I, I, you know, look at every case and, and the disclosure in each case. It was, it was a total privilege. I, I was really hoping that, uh, and I'm sure there'll be others, but I was really hoping to have uh, the Jack Pinkowski story on, on season two of this podcast because, I mean, we know um, we know so much about his um, legend of preparation and just dogged 
trial advocacy and for so many generations of criminal defense lawyers that have come after him. Uh, his legacy still lives on in, in your office today. So clearly it's something that we were really hoping to get. Uh, and, and thanks. Thanks for that, John. My pleasure. Bella Petruccianova and John Filiberto, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come to the Law Garage and sharing your experiences with our listeners. Continuing legal education can take various forms, and I believe that there is something to gain just from talking to our colleagues, which is something I've really missed throughout the pandemic. Thank you very much for your contribution to this project. You know, uh, Marco, I want to thank you for the opportunity and, and having me on. And, you know, I really appreciate it uh, getting to talk about my practice and um, my firm. If anybody wanted to get into contact with me, uh, you can always get my contact information from trialllawyers.ca. A lot of people think that it, we're kind of a closed door practice to outside lawyers. We're not. Um, you know, we're always looking for, for up and coming lawyers who want to join our practice and, and join in firm that we operate and have all these partners, you know, at their your fingertips. Uh, and so if anyone is interested, just reach out. Thanks for that plug, John. Bella, anything you want to plug? Uh, no, thanks, Marco, for having me. I just wanted to thank you for uh, the opportunity to, to, to chat and to catch up a bit. And uh, it's uh, this type of experience is exactly what I what I've missed in the last year and a half. So thanks for having me. Thanks, Bella. Due to some audio complications, just to confirm, John Filiberto can be reached at criminaltriallawyers.ca. Thank you for listening to the Law Garage podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please check out season one and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Law Garage. Our production crew includes executive producer Jason Cooper and associate producers Christina Zdow and Remy Sansomo. The Law Garage is a J Mike podcast production.